Well, it is, uh, it's good to see you. I got to know your pastor. He's, uh, he's been a student. I don't know if you knew this. He's doing a doctoral degree at the Wheaton College Graduate School. So I was his professor. And, uh, and, and did, are you doing better? I mean, have you passed that class? Is it making... Okay, just checking, just checking. I, wanted, I didn't know how it ended. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He's doing great. And you know that because you know just how, how gifted he is, what a blessing he is to your church, and just how, how smart he is as well. So really been a joy, joy to get to know you as well, and a, what a great joy to be here. Again, um, I'm in the process of transitioning to move to uh, Southern California. We actually, all day yesterday and later today, we're uh, hunting for houses, uh, which is causing us to reconsider moving to South Carolina, uh, South, South, South California, Southern California. Uh, boy, it's a whole different world here than the rest of everywhere. So... Um, but that's okay. We're, we're asking the Lord's guidance, and, uh, you know, I think we're actually going to live in Nevada and commute, but that's uh, another story for another day. If you have a Bible, take it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is our text today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, I actually wrote a book. One of the books you saw on the screen earlier is written from verse 14. Uh, we're not even going to touch on verse 14 today, but I love this whole chapter. And so a lot of Christians in the Age of Outrage, the other book you saw, comes from a whole chapter that's built out of this, this passage. I want to talk today about representing Jesus and his kingdom, knowing that this is a complicated time to do that. We feel the tumult and the turbulence in our culture. We feel the division around us. We live in a culturally convulsive time, and it's been challenging. So I'm glad you're here opening God's Word so we can look at this together, whether you're joining us online or here in person in our worship space. I want to say to you that I want to do what the writer of Hebrews says. He says to provoke one another to love and good deeds, and I want to do that by looking at God's Word. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Let me read it before it's on any screens, unless you have it on your little screen there. So, uh, but if you have your Bible open or your Bible on, let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just read it along with me, and then we'll walk through it on the screen. It says this, So from now on we regard no one through a world, from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore... If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed the, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. There's a lot of background and backstory in a one-time message. I can't unpack all of that, but he's kind of encouraging them at times, rebuking them at times, and here he's pointing them to represent Jesus and his kingdom well, to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. We're going to walk through the passage, look at four things to take from the passage. If you're a note taker, it's a pretty easy outline to follow. I encourage you to jot it down. You can also write in your Bible, underline a couple of key things that might help you to remember. So four things. Number one, we get a new perspective. We get a, we get a new perspective. So what is this new perspective? Well, Paul writes to the Christians at this place called Corinth in this letter called 2 Corinthians. He says, so from now on, it begins with the word so, so it's building on what's before, which we don't have time to fully unpack, but it's 
just filled with brilliant wisdom and godly insight. But so from now on, from this time forward, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't want to see people the way the world wants us to see one another. The world wants us to see people through a different set of lenses than Christians should see one another and the world. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul seems to be implying that maybe you misunderstood who Jesus was. Now you see him rightly. You've got a new set of lenses and now you see him rightly. So, so now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We have a new way of looking, a new set of lenses that we see people. Because here's the reality. Right now, 2023, the world is trying to shape us. There's actually commerce involved in the world trying to shape us into seeing ourselves as one group, seeing other people as different groups, and divide us from one another. Now, there are reasons that the culture is divided. There are challenges and people pushing in ways that are, that are wise and unwise in our culture. But the reality is, for far too many people, they're, they're actually being, uh, they're being discipled by their cable news choices. They're being spiritually shaped by their social media, and the end result is not shaping them into a God-honoring, biblically-driven, spirit-filled way to see other people, but they're seeing people through a different set of lenses. And the passage here says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We've got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see people and under the authority of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we get a new perspective. But then in the middle of the verse, it gets to a verse that if you've been around church for a while, you might actually know. You might actually have it on a plaque. Uh, I, I used to work for a company called Lifeway for about a decade. I was one of the vice presidents of a company called Lifeway. I bet some of you have been into a Lifeway store back when we had Lifeway stores. You say, why aren't there any more Lifeway stores? Because you all shopped at Amazon. But that's another story for another day. So you went there, might have got a plaque, said, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation, right? So, so here's what the passage says that so many know. It says, therefore. Now, whenever you're in the Bible and you see a therefore, you want to ask, what's it there for? What's it doing? So it's connecting the ideas here with the earlier ideas, right? So we got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Therefore, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, a new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old is gone the new is here. Now, you might remember this verse because it's an early memory verse for a lot of Christians. I have it memorized in a different translation, but the theme is so clear, right? The new creation has come. I've been born again. I got a new life. I got a new life. The old has passed away. The new life has come. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, well, first of all, we're so glad that you're here if you're not a follower of Jesus. This is a welcome place for you to go on this journey to ask questions with us here at your Calvary Community Church family. So, so go with us on that journey. Ask those questions. If you're watching online and you don't know the Lord, we're so glad you're here. But I want you to hear that maybe, maybe you came today because, you know, I'm in a difficult spot in my life. I need to turn over a new leaf. I get it. I hear it. We're glad you're here. But the Christian life is actually not about turning over a new leaf. Christianity is about receiving new life. It's to acknowledge that we are spiritually dead in need of new life in Christ and to receive by grace and through faith the good news of the gospel. So here we find in this passage, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. Now, that new life is going to give us a new way to live here specifically it's connected to a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Here at Calvary Community, we talk about making disciples who live and love like Jesus, right? So you're going to live like Jesus, you're going to love like Jesus because you've been changed by the power of Jesus. You got a new life, 
a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Following with me? Got a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Now, I've touched my glasses a few times. You see that I wear glasses. How many of you wear glasses? Don't be afraid. Just put up those hands. Four eyes we are, right? That's what I remember being called as a kid, right? Four eyes because my, my mother, when I was in elementary school, my mother and I went to the eye doctor, came home from the eye doctor, and um, my mother took me in the kitchen. We grew up outside of New York City, and she took me in the kitchen in Levittown, New York, and she said, Eddie, she called me Eddie, and you may not, so she says, Eddie, <laughs> she says, Eddie, um, you're going to get to wear glasses. There's an interesting phrase. She said, you're going to get to wear glasses, putting a positive spin on it. I said, Mom, I was mortified by the idea of wearing glasses. I said, Mom, the kids are all going to make fun of me. She said, Eddie, they're not going to make fun of you. Everyone's going to think it's cool. And I think that is the first moment when I realized my mother did not always tell me the truth. For my benefit, but nevertheless, it was not true. They did make fun of me, but there was more to the story because a moment later she said, Eddie, not just you're wearing glasses, but you're going to be wearing an eye patch. Because I had a lazy eye, you got to wear an eye patch to strengthen the other eye. And I said, Mom, that's going to be terrible. They're going to mock me. They're going to make fun of me. She said, Eddie, they're going to think you're a pirate. Nobody thought I was a pirate. They all just made fun of me. Now... Glasses may have a little bit of a back story for me, so it's not that long ago. I have three daughters. Oh, I love having three daughters, right? Father of all girls. And um, they're 18, 21, and 24. It's both a statement of my situation and a request for your prayer. Um, and my youngest daughter, her name's Caitlin, right? So she's a, just finished her freshman year in college. Let me tell you about her just briefly before I tie into the glasses. But so she's, uh, she's a, just finished her freshman year. Just got, just texted us yesterday. She got the dean's list. So I'm real proud of her. So, but she, uh, she sat us down about 18 months ago because I'm a dean right now, still am a dean at Wheaton College. And Wheaton College is a small school intentionally. And so she came up to us and she said, mom and dad, I want you to know I've kind of made a decision where I want to go to college. And, you know, she's youngest daughter, super close to mom, close to us. She said, and so she kind of looked and she had this tender look on her face. She said, I've decided not to go to Wheaton College. And I, and I said, it's okay. Your, your oldest sister went to Wheaton College. It's fine. She said, but dad, you're sort of, we got an unusual last name, Stetzer, and everybody sort of knows you at this small school. You're a dean there. And, and I just, I, I don't, I don't want to like constantly, you know, have, are you Ed Stetzer's daughter? Are you Ed Stetzer's daughter? So I said, I totally understand. So we said, we're so excited. So she picked a school on the other side of the country named Biola University. <laughs> so about three months ago, I sat her down and said, hey, uh, I got a little news for you. You know, when you picked to go to Biola University because you didn't want your dad to be the dean at your school, well, we're moving there too. So she is warmed to the idea after its initial frosty reception. So, but when she was a middle schooler, she's always been an easy child. If we had her first, we probably would have had nine children. Um, she's always been an easy child. So she came home from the eye doctor with Donna when she was in middle school. And she came back, and Donna comes to me. Donna's my wife. And Donna comes to me in the kitchen, and Caitlin's in the living room off the side. And Donna comes, puts her hand on my arm, which she does when she wants me to pay attention. And to take seriously what she's about to say, I always pay attention and take seriously, but the hand on the arm is a signal. So she comes up, puts her hand on my arm and says, listen, Ed, Caitlin's going to be wearing glasses. I do not want you to overreact. I was like, me? Overreact? No. So I got into dad mode. Some of you know dad mode. So I 
kind of strolled, sa- really sauntered more than strolled. I sauntered into the living room and I said, Kaylin, Kaylin, I hear you're going to get to wear glasses. Right? I literally turned into my mom. <laughs> Same words. But I was trying to encourage her, and, and she, but she saw right through it. Now, she's middle school. She's not, allowed to, she's not allowed to roll her eyes at her parents in middle school, though she seems to be able to do it now. Um, but she's not allowed to roll her eyes. But she seems to be able to verbally roll her eyes. So here's what she says. She says, Dad, eyes didn't move, but Dad, I mean, it's clearly an eye roll word. She said, Dad, listen, listen, glasses are cool today. She said, Dad, my friends in middle school are going to the store to buy glasses without prescriptions so they can wear them because they're cool and stylish. Some of you are nodding this. Some of you know this. I had no idea. And I'm like stunned that people are actually voluntarily wearing glasses. But, but there they are. And so she said, Dad, this is cool. So I was excited for her. I mean, what a great news for her that she gets to wear glasses. But simultaneous, I was still dealing with my own childhood bitterness that may or may not have come out in the conversation. Um. You see, I don't wear glasses for fashion, right? Let me tell you why I wear glasses. This is not a big secret, right? I wear glasses, are you ready? For seeing. Maybe some of you are wearing them for fashion. I'm wearing them for seeing. And because I wear them for seeing, when I talk, my glasses move around. So you'll see I have to adjust my glasses. I have to put them back so I can see you. If, they, if I talk and get excited, they come down here, and, and I take my glasses off, and, and you're not here anymore. It's a good, I don't know who's, I don't know where I am. I put them back on. It's welcome to Calvary Community Church. So anyway, so I was the interim teaching pastor of a church uh, in Chicago. I, I live in Chicagoland now, and there's a church in Chicago called the Moody Church, um, which my daughters thought was the funniest named church ever named. You're like, are they unhappy at times and more happy at other times? But anyway, so I was at the Moody Church. It's an historic church in downtown Chicago, wonderful church, been around a long time. I bet some of you have been there, maybe you've been in Chicago or seen it or listened to Pastor Lutzer on the radio. So he stepped into an emeritus role. I became the interim pastor at the Moody Church, which was fun and fascinating. I was the interim for four years. Nobody should be the interim of anything for four years, but there I was. So, um, so eventually they wanted me to say, you know, after the first year, I said, well, what do you think we should do here or there? So I did implement a few changes in this very traditional church, right? So, for example, I dress like this. I dress just like your pastor does. It's actually a vibe of middle-aged pastors. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain it to you. So here's how it works, right? Because he's got the same thing that I got on literally right now. Matter of fact, I looked, I watched a couple of messages. He wears the same outfit regularly. Here's, here's what it is, just so you know what's going on, right? We're, we, we got jeans on because we're trying to appeal to the cool people, right? We got an untucked shirt to let you know that we're sort of on the edge. Um, but we're wearing a blazer so you can trust us. We're responsible leaders, Right? So it's sort of what I call a ministry mullet. You know what a mullet is? A mullet is business in the front, party in the back. Basically, it's business up top, party on the bottom for us. Right? So that's, what we're, that's the vibe we're going for, right? Your pastor and I are the exact same age. So, so we're, we're rocking this vibe. So, so, so anyway, so I, I started, I showed up at Moody Church, which is a very traditional church, choir, orchestra, the whole nine yards. And I, I, I dressed in the ministry mullet. And people didn't like it, so they sent some letters, and so I, I changed. I didn't want to distract people. But then I was there for a year, and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be here a while, I'm going to be more comfortable with what I'm doing. I made some changes. Some people write letters. So we kind of got some letters, but it was great. It was a great interim. I mean, four years, I mean, it was a great interim. 
Um, but I got complaint letters occasionally, and one of the complaint letters was the best complaint letter I've ever received in my entire life. So I got it. They didn't send me most of the complaint letters. I mean, it was all, you know, I wish the pastor would learn how to tuck in his shirt kind of stuff. So, um, so I got this one complaint letter, and I got it on my phone. They forwarded it to me, and I read it, and I, I was with Don at the time, and I'm like, this is amazing. So I actually screenshot it, and I edited out the beginning, you know, dear, I think he called me Dr. Stetzer, and, uh, and told me who he was. Actually, it was a signed letter, and, uh, and then I, I took out his signature at the end. And I actually screenshot it. So I have the actual screen, unedited, this is the actual screenshot. Take a look on your screen and let me read it to you. It says this. I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. After listening to it once, I listened again. Praise God. Who listens to a sermon two times? Someone who really loves Jesus. Because I was awestruck. Pastor, it's getting better. He's awestruck with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, some of you are a little shocked by the phrase, first 36 minutes of your sermon. Moody Church has long sermons. It says, I saw you adjust your glasses 74 times. And you can feel his passion, right? He says, and then you took them off. So I did count it no further. You feel his passion. Then he gets a calculator. This was an average of once every 30 seconds. But you hear the passion. But keep in mind, this was an incomplete count because some of the time, scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you. Can you feel his passion? I tell you this in Christian love. They all said that, even the mean ones. Um, because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that might distract listeners from hearing what you are teaching slash preaching. And here's the passion. So I hope you will accept this knowing that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. Is that not the greatest letter ever? I made, he was actually, he was very kind. I made changes on the basis of this. I got something called nerd wax. I saw it on Shark Tank. I got nerd wax. And, and so I actually, I move my glasses less now. Now I know there's about five or six of you who just took out a pen and a paper and you're starting to mark every time I touch my glasses. And you're going to tell me outside. I just want you to know, it's fine to do that, but nobody likes you when you do that. I just want you to know that. You're going to say, Eddie, I counted how many times you cut your glasses. And I'm going to hug you and I love you and I'm going to talk about you at lunch with the pastor. So don't do that. So, but here's the thing, I don't wear glasses for fashion, I wear glasses for seeing. And I don't know about you, but if you're a follower of Jesus, our culture has experienced some radical shifts that have pushed people away from biblical values, that have put Christians at a place where they're unsure how to respond at work, they're unsure how to engage their neighbors. And then in the midst of the turbulence and tumult, the culture itself is fraying apart, and we're often unsure how to engage this cultural moment well. But in the turbulence and the tumult, you have been knocked about, just like my head knocks about when I'm preaching and talking, and i got to readjust my lenses so I can see. And I want to say to you, the last few years have knocked a lot of people about. And I just want to be here to remind you today that you might need to readjust your gospel lenses today. Because you might have found that you got caught up in the world's way of seeing one another, but the Bible calls us to get a new perspective. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Why? Because we got a new life. 
Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. So I don't want you to miss this, right? We got a new life. We got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. And we got to make sure those lenses are in right gospel focus in 2023. And that's what I want to encourage you towards today. This is nothing that your pastor hasn't shared. This is nothing that the Bible doesn't teach. But we get a new perspective, number one. Number two in our outline, number one is we get a new perspective. Number two is sent on a mission of reconciliation. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. Let's keep going through the text because in two verses, four times, we're going to hear the words reconcile. The word reconcile in one form or another. Let's look at it. Jot down your notes, number two. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. If you'd like... Write in your Bible, when we come to the word reconcile, four times in these two verses and one time after that, underline every time you see the word reconcile. It says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, so we've been reconciled by God through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Don't miss the, the path here. Reconciled, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then, the writers of the New Testament often engage in what's called parallelism where they say something similar, not quite the same, so you hear it twice and you don't miss it. These were often read out loud, so here's what it goes on to say. It says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. If you underlined, you underlined four times in two verses. But there's a path there. You have been reconciled to become an agent of reconciliation with the message of reconciliation, with the ministry of reconciliation. You have been reconciled to become an agent of gospel reconciliation. Now it says all this is from God, pointing back earlier to the chapter, so much that's there. I encourage you to spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But here's the reality. You know, I drove here this morning. I was, I was texting uh, Pastor Sean yesterday, and I'm like, uh, I, I, I was, we're, we've got a temporary place there in Orange County, so I, I looked at Google Maps, and it is a long drive. It was two and a half hours, and I texted him and said, should I plan on two and a half hours in the morning? He said, no, no, the traffic will be, traffic will be uh, much less in the morning, and it, and it was, and so it was a great easy drive up here. But, but I, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm not yet, I know that I'm going to have to learn to like, like literally plan my life around traffic in a way that I don't do now. I've learned this. So I live four blocks from Wheaton College. Traffic for me is who's on the sidewalk on the way to work. So like this morning was great though, right? It was great. There was no traffic. That's, I mean, I thought, these are great interstates. These are great highway systems, right? So I, I drove here this morning. Uh, so I, I like highways. We'll see how long I like highways when I get here. It appears all of you drive a Tesla um, to cheat in the HOV lane. It appears that's what people do to get by. So maybe, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I got to do that. But um, but I like highways because um, I guess, you know, I mean, it's always been easy to jump on and jump off because I don't drive in the key peak times, but I'm going to learn. So um, I often compare this verse, though, to a highway, kind of a great commission highway. Let me explain. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations. He said to the disciples, go make disciples. So they told somebody, they told somebody, who told somebody, who told somebody, who told somebody. And 2,000 years later, somebody told you. If you're a follower of Jesus and have received the good news of the gospel by grace and through faith. And if you're now a believer, you have actually are there because somebody somehow told you. And that Great Commission Highway goes back 2,000 years. So somebody told you and somebody told that person, somebody told that person, somebody told that person. 2,000 years, it goes back. Now, why does that matter? Because we're called to be the people who tell others on that journey. Let me give you an example. Um, about two years into living in Chicagoland, that's where we live now, Chicagoland, it was a February. In February, it is so cold in Chicagoland. 
It is, uh, well, it was actually one day, it was minus 23 degrees, not wind chill, but actual temperature. And it was so, it was colder than the surface of Mars. So, no, true story, that wasn't true. It was literally colder than the surface of Mars. So, um, so and my kids, they thought it was fascinating. They would boil water and uh, throw boiling water at one another outside, just so you know, don't, don't do that um, without the proper temperature and outside. So, so anyway, so, um, so I was supposed to speak at an event in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and so Donna says to me, my wife, she says, I'm going. So we get in the car. We call Uber, and our Uber driver, her name's Jane. She shows up, and you know, you know her name from the app. She says to me, hi, Ed. Donna introduces herself. And we get in the car, and Jane's like a super nice Uber driver. Cause, and that's a lot of the Uber drivers are, you know, they're, they're working for a tip, and they're working for a good rating. So Jane, we get in the car. Jane says, listen, I got, I got power plugs if you want to charge your phone. I got bottles of water behind the seats. And, and she said, and take anything you want from the little basket in the middle, which was great. So we looked down a little basket in the middle, and there were some snacks and an obviously strategically placed New Testament for us to take. So we knew something exciting was about to happen. So I looked at Donna. Now, we've been married 35 years. We got, we got married 20 years of age. Don't tell our daughters. Uh, so we've been married over 35 years. So, so, we, um, so I turned to Donna. And we actually, when you, after you've been married 30 years, you actually don't require physical words anymore. You actually communicate telepathically. So, so I looked at her and kind of with a little wry face, I said to her, hey, let's have a little fun with this. And just, just run with this for a little while. Let's, let's not tell her. Let's just run with this for a little while. And, uh, and a mischievous face I had. And she responded back with her face without any words, okay, but I know you, Ed Stetzer, do not take this too far. So I didn't. Whole conversation that was there. So, so Jane starts to ask us, so tell us about yourselves. And I'm, you know, I tell her I'm from outside of New York City, grew up there. Donna grew up in Canada. Uh, we met in high school in Orlando, high school sweethearts, went to the prom, told her our story. Uh, she asked questions, do you have any kids with three daughters? And, and then she, she asked a couple of questions. I mean, she's very good asking about our family and our interests. And, and then she asked some questions that uh, I had to redirect. Because remember, I wasn't trying to tell her who we were and what we did. So, so she said, well, do you have any spiritual background or religious upbringing? And, and, uh, and, 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 I, and I actually, at that point, Donna looks at me and she says, in, like telepathically, she says, you can't lie about this one. You, you've redirected her conversation. I never lied, but I redirected. She asked me once, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a teacher. What do you do? So I kind of quickly redirected that one. Um, but she said, so, uh, so do you have any spiritual upbringing or spiritual background or beliefs? And, I, and so Donna looked at me, you got to tell her without saying, and said, so I leaned forward. And I said, Jane, yes, actually we do. Jane, we're actually Christians. Matter of fact, I teach evangelism at the Wheaton College Graduate School, and you are doing so great right now. A plus for Jane. Now, if you're interested in that story more, I actually leaned forward and said, Jane, can I do an interview with you right now on the way to the airport? Because clearly you've been thinking about how to meet people. And if you Google, after the sermon, if you Google Jane the Uber driver, that story got picked up by a lot of publications because Jane actually drove Uber. She's a realtor, but nobody's buying houses in February in Chicago. Um, <laughs> um, but she's a realtor normally, but she says, I had some time and I wanted to meet people and share Jesus with people that I met. 
You see, Jane knew, and she drove the highways, that she was on a Great Commission highway. See, somebody told Jane, and somebody told that person, and they'll that person, told that person, and Jane wanted to make sure she was telling people as well. You say, well, Jane's uniquely gifted in doing that. No, all of us are on a Great Commission highway. Somebody told you, and somebody told that person, somebody told that person. All I'm saying to you is, don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission highway. And... I know Christians love evangelism as long as somebody else is doing it, but the call for all of us is to, is to share the good news with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and more. We've been reconciled, and now are agents of reconciliation with a message of reconciliation and a ministry of reconciliation. We went down to Fort Lauderdale from the airport, and the next morning my phone blew up because Billy Graham died. And I, I, I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. It's kind of an academic ministry study center there. There's several organizations named uh, in Mr. Graham, after Mr. Graham. But, but I, I lead the one at Wheaton College. I, I hold the chair named after him, the, Wheaton College, uh, the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Evangelism and Mission and Church. And so I knew my life was about change. We, I wrote an article for USA Today that day and CNN that day. And, and we all kind of planned towards the funeral. And, and we ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina. You probably watched or saw clips from it. It was amazing. It was global news. I think every living president visited either Mr. Graham's uh, body laid in the rotunda. The last person who did that was Rosa Parks or came to the funeral. I mean, the world kind of paid attention to this humble evangelist from North Carolina who, as I wrote in CNN, who became famous for trying to make someone else famous, Jesus. And I love that. I bet so many of you have a Billy Graham story where your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents went to a crusade and your life was chained. So afterwards, was after the funeral, we did the funeral. You watched it on TV. If you listened on radio, a friend and I were the voice of the radio kind of explaining what's going on. So we might have met each other via radio. So, so afterwards, the reporters all came up. And it wasn't an organized press conference because this came up to us. And the religion reporter from the New York Times at the time was named Lori. She came up to me and she said, Dr. Stetzer, um, she asked the normal questions. What do you think Billy Graham's legacy was? She's like, how do you think people would see Billy Graham today? And, and then she asked the question that I was sort of waiting for and ready for. She said, Dr. Stetzer, who do you think's the next Billy Graham? And nobody in the family claims to be the next Billy Graham. They don't use that language. Nobody really should claim to be the next Billy Graham. But I was ready for the answer. She said, who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, let me tell you, her name is Jane the Uber driver. And I, she looked at me with a strange look and I explained the story. But here's the thing. Billy Graham would often remind people, he was just a messenger of a good news that needed to be told to the whole world. And somebody told Billy Graham, now Billy Graham was raised in a Christian home, but he would point to a meeting where Mordecai Ham preached the gospel. So Mordecai Ham told Billy Graham, and somebody told Mordecai Ham, and somebody told him. So Billy Graham and Jane the Uber driver on the same Great Commission Highway. They were reconciled to become agents of reconciliation. This passage says twice that we have the message of reconciliation and are given the ministry of reconciliation. So Billy Graham, Jane the Uber driver, Ed Stetzer, and you are all on the same Great Commission Highway don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission Highway. So, number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. And I think this is the heart of the passage, representing Jesus and his kingdom. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, if you are a Bible reader and you've read through this a lot, you actually know Paul's not referring to you, me, in there. He's referring to himself and a group of missionaries. He's defending his apostleship here. Yet for 2,000 years, Christians have used the word ambassador. We're citizens of another kingdom. This world is not our home. We represent Jesus and his kingdom, and that's what ambassadors do. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassador as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you're underlying the reconciles, there's the fifth one. You can underline that one right there as well. So we're ambassadors, Paul writes, and we, as those who are told to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, to live as citizens of the kingdom in the world, we represent Jesus and his kingdom well, because that's our call. Now, the word ambassador is only used twice in your English Bible, once here and once in Ephesians, where Paul says, I am an ambassador in change. You see, it's not always easy. And I think right now, as our culture is shifting rapidly, we're finding it harder to represent Jesus and his kingdom, and maybe sometimes can get drawn to do ways that are not helpful and God-glorifying. But at the same time, I think we can walk in ways that represent Jesus and his kingdom well. So what would that look like? Well, I'm reminded of, you know, I'm, since I work in academia, I'm, like I said, the new dean of the Talbot School of Theology, graduations are a great time. Um, we love graduating our students. And one year at our Wheaton College graduation, we had guest speaker. We always have a commencement speaker. And the commencement speakers were Wheaton College graduates, as they often are. Their names were Andrew and Noreen Brunson. You might not know the name, but my guess is many of you know the story by the time I tell it. You see, Andrew and Noreen Brunson were serving in Turkey at a small church that they had planted and served. And one day, the Turkish police came up and arrested both Andrew and Noreen. They released Noreen. She then became an advocate. But Andrew was imprisoned on made-up charges of terrorism in Turkey for two years. The Turkish leader was trying to get the U.S. to trade for a religious leader they wanted in the United States for this religious leader who's an American in Turkey, but everybody knew the charges were made up. We had people from all political parties, from the State Department, from the president calling for Andrew Brunson's release. And yet, for two years, he was in a Turkish prison. Now, I want you to know, a Turkish prison here where a small jail cell might have been for two or three people, might have 10, 15 people almost all of whom hated the faith that Andrew stood for, and here he was. And he tells a story at the Wheaton College graduation. Now, mind you, you've been to a graduation. Everyone's full of bright eyes and excited about the future. And he gets up and says, listen, what you got to hear and not miss is you're going to represent Jesus. I'm paraphrasing. You're going to represent Jesus and his kingdom. You're going to be about Christ and his kingdom. But you don't know the challenges you're going to face. You don't know the world you're going to walk in. And he got honest. He said, for two years, I was in prison with people who often hated me and worked against me, and I was in danger and brokenness. And he said, he said, I broke more than once. Not that I gave up my faith, but I had nothing left. I was just broken. All I had was to lean on Jesus. But in the midst of that prison, I tried to represent Jesus. But then his release came, and this is the part you may have seen, because they took him in an Air Force jet from Turkey to a base in Europe and cleaned him up. And flew him straight to Joint Base Andrews and from there right into the White House. And you might have seen it because every news network carried it live. The Andrew Brunson and Noreen Brunson were there in the Oval Office. And he says at one point, he says, because all the cameras are there, people asking his questions. And he says, can I just pray right here? And then just pray. He gets down on his knees in the Oval Office and intercedes for this nation and the advance of the gospel. And I got to tell you. You don't know whether you're going to find yourself in a difficult future or a challenging future. Now, here's the reality. I mean, we live in a state where culture is increasingly moving away from Christian faith and values. Now, that can cause us to react in fear. I think instead it needs to cause us to react in faith to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. Now, here's the reality, right? We know Jesus still wins. I've read the end of the book. Jesus wins. 
But we want to live faithfully in this time, in our time, in the midst of the tumult and the turbulence to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. Not to do it the way the world wants to do it, where there's all the screaming and yelling, but to show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world. To to acknowledge that we're called to make disciples. This is a key phrase for us here at Calvary Community. We want to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. So number one, we get a new perspective, right? We got, a, we got a new life, a new way of living, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Number two, we're sent on a mission of reconciliation. We've been reconciled now to be agents of reconciliation, not letting our lives be a cul-de-sac on God's great commission highway. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom as ambassadors, even in the midst of a tumultuous and turbulent time. Number four, and finally, and I'll close with this. You know what it means when a guest speaker says, I'll close with this in the last service? Absolutely nothing, actually. (laughs) Hope you packed a lunch. Uh, I'm kidding. Number four, and finally, because of the cross. Because of the cross. Now, this passage is kind of interesting because this whole passage and that which goes before, I told you verse 14, compelled by love. Verse 16, uh, 15, he died for all, so all would live not for themselves but for him. I mean, there's so much here in chapter 5. But verse 21 is almost out of place. If it wasn't God's inerrant word, I might say this is almost out of place because it's like such a whole different theme. Let's look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin. There's a lot of prepositions and pronouns, so let me just say this way. God made him who had no sin is Jesus. So God made Jesus, him who had no sin, to be sin for us. As follower of Jesus, he became sin for us. So that in Jesus, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is an intensely theological passage. Matter of fact, this is actually the doctrine of imputation. Why don't you say that out loud with me, would you? Imputation. Let's do it again. Imputation. I believe if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. Words help us, right? So imputation. So so our sin was deposited, imputed in Christ, And his righteousness was therefore deposited or imputed to us. Our sin imputed to Christ is called atonement. Christ's righteousness imputed to us is called justification. So so this is a beautiful theological passage. The one who knew no sin, Jesus, died a sinner's death. He, he, He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the substitution moment. Our sin taken on Jesus. He takes the punishment for our sin as our substitute. He was made sin, not a sinner. He was made sin for us. Sin was imputed to him so his righteousness could be imputed to us. God treated Jesus as if he committed every sin so that believers could be seen by God as having lived Jesus' perfect life. Powerful, powerful truth. But what's it doing in this passage? Remember where we got here, right? We got a new perspective, a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses. That's about dealing with other people. Sent on a mission of reconciliation, right? We've been reconciled, agents of reconciliation, engaging other people, representing Jesus. I mean, just representing him is two other people. And then there's this deeply theological picture of what happens on the cross. Why? Let me see if I can give you an example or an illustration that may help. It goes back to my childhood. I grew up uh, in and then outside of New York City. You got a problem with that? Forget about it. So someone always comes up afterwards and like we, we, we bond over the New York accent. So I grew up outside of New York City and um, New York City went through a hard time and my family 
uh, kind of just without anything, started over uh, down in Florida. So my grandfather moved first. He retired from the fire department, the New York Fire Department, moved down there. He bought a house that we then rented from him. It was in bad shape. The door was off the house when we arrived. The last tenants had kind of torn it up. And technically, I think a door, a house without a door is technically a cave. But nevertheless, we went into the cave slash house. And there wasn't any air conditioner. We lived in Orlando, Florida without air conditioning. They had a big fan in the middle of the house that they said was the exhaust fan. And they would turn it on. And what we told my grandfather said, it would suck all the hot air out of the house, which was actually true. It just sucked new hot air into the house because it was Orlando, Florida. <laughs> so um, a few weeks after we were there, the house was had some challenges, some leaks. My dad was frustrated with my grandfather. Well, one day, all of the plumbing in the house backed up at the same time. So my, gran- my dad calls my grandfather, uh, very aggressively used some words that we called around the house, his bowling words. So, um, so um, and then about 10 minutes later, my grandfather called back. He called me. He said, Eddie, uh, would you grab a shovel and meet me outside? We're going to dig up something in the backyard. And I said, sure. So I, I mean, my grandfather was a pretty smart guy, pretty ca- crafty guy. And so he said, we're going to dig up something in the backyard, grab a shovel. And I'm just thinking, my grandfather... He knows Ponce de Leon Leon had gone through here. My grandfather probably has a secret treasure map, and we're going to dig up some treasure in my very backyard. Oh, and it was a treasure, I'll tell you this right now. (laughs) So we get out there, and my grandfather comes to this particularly lush area of the backyard, more green than the rest, a little elevated than the rest, not much, maybe four or five inches high, and he says, let's dig here. And so we start digging. My grandfather's going to give me, I don't know, five bucks. So we start digging. And within just, just a couple of shovels, we hit a box buried in our yard. I mean, this is the most amazing thing. So I don't know how old I am, 12, 13 years old. And I'm like, Grandpa, there's a box buried in the yard. And he has this, this grin on his face. But I'm like, Grandpa, so I start clearing the box. And it's, it's a pretty good-sized box. And, and I clear it. I said, Grandpa, there's a box buried in our yard. And he's like, I know, I know. I says, Wait. And he says, we're going to open it. I said, you bet we got to open it, Grandpa. We got to see what's in here. I mean, Ponce de Leon is in my mind. So he brings, he has this little iron rod. He gives me this iron rod, and my job is to lift the lid off of the treasure box. And so, so I take the lid, and I little notch the iron thing, and I lift it, and I shift it up, and I slide it to the side. And, and as I do, I mean, I lift up this box, and I look, and sweet mother of pearl. There's a box of poop in my yard. I'm not sure. I should have checked if I can say that word here at the church. So I'm looking at this. Like, I'm a city kid. I grew up in New York City. Who's storing this in the yard? Don't you have sewers? Don't you have, like, what in the world? I found out later the reason that area of the yard was green, and I never played in that area again. Some of you know that's called a septic tank. I didn't know what that was. And so my grandfather says to me, well, we're going to have to unclog it. And I'm like, we? So he says, yeah, so we renegotiated my fee. Um, and my grandfather, so I take the long iron rod. My job is to kind of unclog it. And then my grandfather says to me at some point, it's your family, Eddie. It's your family. I'm like, I don't care if it's the Queen of England. There's something unholy in this box. So my job is to take the iron rod and find the pipe and sort of clean any family obstructions that might be there. So I can't get the angle because it's kind of, you know, we dug it up. And so he said, all right, Eddie, I'll hold your shirt. You just lean over the septic tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he's, I don't know, because he's Irish, I guess. I don't know. So, so he's holding my shirt and he tries to be funny. 
and he shakes me and says, don't fall in. And I do. No. It's a true story. This is not a preacher story. This actually happened. So I, I'm standing up to my knees in my family. And you know how you respond? You're like, oh, you weren't there. Don't give me your little size of agreement. I was standing in it just past my knees. And then my grandfather's laughing. Soon my whole family comes out. They're all laughing. And they're like, and I'm like, I, I'm holding an iron rod. If they weren't family, they'd be in trouble. So they want to wash me off with tomato juice. I'm not sure if I joined a cult that day. I don't know what that was. <laughs> so here's the thing. Years later, I'm reading this passage. And I want you to know that you know that you're not supposed to be near human waste. It's like your body's designed. It's repulsive to you. You want to get away from it. It's part of how God designed you. You don't want to be near that. And God the Son, holy in all perfections, for all eternity. There's never been a time when God has not existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But so loved us. God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. So God the Son, born Jesus the Christ, into a sinful, broken world. Though he himself never sins, he lives in a world where the stench and filth of sin is all around. He sees the death and the destruction that's there. Not that he wasn't aware of it before, but he came close. He saw. He comes up to the cross, and at the garden, he sweats blood. Why does he sweat blood? Because he knows that he's about to go on the cross. And when he goes on the cross, this verse becomes real. It's not just that he dies for our sin, that he has made sin on our behalf. So all the sinful things that you and I have done, Jesus became sin for us. And at that moment, we actually see it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what does this passage have to do with the rest of the passage? Here's what it is. When you understand what Jesus did on the cross for your sin and in your place, in gratitude to the grace of his gospel, you want to take a different way of engaging your neighbors. You want to live for Jesus and represent him well. You want to get a new perspective, to get a new way of life, a new way of living, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. You want to live on a mission of reconciliation because he's reconciled you with what Jesus did on the cross. You want to represent Jesus and his kingdom well because you know what Jesus has done for you. It changes everything. Your kingdom is backward is the song that we sang and we'll sing again. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, we live differently. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, we're glad you're here or you're watching online. But I want to invite you to receive by grace and through faith the good news of this gospel so you might live this kind of life. We're not perfect. We struggle. But we've been changed by the power of the gospel. And for those who have been changed by the power of the gospel, can I remind you that you got a new life, a new way of looking, and you may need to adjust your gospel lenses. And maybe today I encourage you in some way to do that because we get a new perspective. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. Please, sisters and brothers, your church has been on mission. And I've seen and heard, I've known about your church for years. How your churches seek to live for Jesus in the midst of turbulent and tumultuous times. But you personally have to decide not to let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's great commission highway. Representing Jesus and his kingdom, an ambassador. It might be hard sometimes. You're trying to figure out how to navigate these things at work and in your family. And I get it. But let's represent Jesus and his kingdom well because of the cross. Can I pray for you? Father, we acknowledge that by grace and your goodness, you've redeemed us, called us by name, sent us on mission for your name's sake.
And Lord Jesus, we come before you this day. We're watching online or here in person. Father, you have sent us on mission. And the moment we're in does not pause the mission we're on. But Lord, we can acknowledge that we just need your grace because it's sometimes been harder. As the culture has become uh, more resistant to your truths, moved away from biblical teachings. Lord, help us to show and share the love of Jesus more boldly, more clearly, with winsomeness that surprises even those who might not like us. Father, remember. Remember us. Help us to remember how you've called us. This new life, this new way of looking, this new set of lenses. For those here today who need to have that adjustment, Lord, help us to have that new way of looking, a new way of living to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. Thank you for Calvary Community Church. May we all join you on mission for your name and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.